gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. You know, I don't know that I actually have to say that every time. It's just been this crutch. Um, maybe, maybe I should figure out some new way to start because it's it's not interesting. It's not like at the beginning when people didn't know what the Dispatch was, and I was saying, you know, Remnants brought to you by National Review. And then all of a sudden I say, brought to you by the dispatch, it was sort of like a marketing thing so people understood. But I, I don't know if it's necessary now. I don't know that we can tie a lot of new members to the fact that I say that at the beginning. And um, maybe I should say something else. Excelsior, rat farts. I fear much trouble in the fuselage, Frederick. Who knows? All right. So um, I am in uh, beautiful Weehawken, New Jersey. I'm at my uh, late mom's house, which I still haven't quite figured out what I'm going to do about. Um, I'd really prefer not to sell it and keep it in the family for my daughter. It's very cool and weird and funky, very much like my mom. Um, On the other hand, (laughs) it's not. Dispatch is doing well, but uh, I'm not exactly a maintain two mortgages kind of guy. So I haven't quite figured out what to do. And it's a terrible time to refinance because of interest rates and all that. And um, so there you have it. Actually, the reason I bring up I'm here is one, I usually tell you where I am. Um, But two, uh, just so you know, sort of like where my my, uh, attention has been. Um, My mom didn't want a funeral. She wanted a party. Uh, I was not ready to give to throw a party for my mom um, when, uh, right after she died. So we waited and I decided to um, rent out the entire entirety of the White Horse Tavern um, for a uh, sort of a Irish wakey dive saloon kind of party for my mom. My mom used to love the White Horse Tavern Writer's Center was this very famous writer's saloon. Um, uh, uh, I think Dylan Thomas drank himself to death there. And um, I think they used to have graffiti over the urinals saying, Jack Kerouac, go home. And um, so I thought it'd be a cool place to do it. Um, I hope people kind of get the sort of joke about it. You know, that it's kind of divey. It's not the Four Seasons or anything like that. Um, but I have a bunch of friends I'm very touched and moved and flattered and honored and grateful for, or coming from DC for it, um, at great logistical and financial hassle. Um, and a lot of my mom's friends, the ones who were left and, um, it's a source of great stress for me, uh, just because I've put out compartmentalized a whole bunch of Grief and other things saying, let's just get through this thing, you know, even as I'm still dealing with all sorts of estate stuff. And, uh, um, and then there was this added stress. I shouldn't laugh. It was really terrible. So the woman I booked this through was a very nice lady. Um, not great about calling me back or emails, but I think she managed a bunch of different, you know, things. And, and then she just stopped returning my calls and emails and I had questions, you know, and I want to make sure I just, you know, I would ask, is everything on track and not get any answer. 
And I got really, really angry. And finally, I don't know, about a week ago, I called the place and I was like, can I just please speak to, and I'll leave her name out of it. And they're like, I'm sorry, but she passed away. And all of a sudden, all of this anger that I built up, you know, you know, this is righteous. How dare you look at all the money I'm spending? You know, this is for my dead mother. Um, just had to, you know, I had to swallow it because it was terrible. It was a very nice person, but she was really well loved at the White Horse Tavern and everyone took it very hard and no one thought, which I do think was a just a business, big business mistake to like look at the clients that she was dealing with and give them a call and give them a heads up that they'd have a new contact person. But the new contact person is very nice and all that. And I'm, I'm hoping that I can just get through this thing um, without falling apart. Um, but man, it was just like, it was always another thing, you know? Um, oh, and thanks to everybody, including listener Heidi, uh, who've been curious about how things worked out with Santander. Um, it turns out that if you just keep throwing money at a debt, eventually they will admit that they can't hold it against you anymore. Um, so that's been taken care of. Uh, still think that they had the crappiest, most insensitive customer service, bureaucratic, you know, malpractice of any financial institution I've ever dealt with but we don't need to deal with all that. All right, so enough about my self-indulgent woes and travails. Um, let's talk about everybody's self-indulgent woes and travails. Uh, I'm getting grief again, which I, even though I admitted to it, you know, on the Dispatch podcast that my prediction, my, my, my predictive powers have not been um, exactly top-notch of late. You know, Joe Biden's running for president. I said Fox wouldn't change. I still kind of think Fox isn't going to change. It depends what you mean by change. Uh, there's not a lot. Of, I, I still think I, I don't want to get deep into this Tucker crap right now, but you know, it, it so far it sounds like the firing of Tucker Carlson was sui generis, not Dominion related. If it was Dominion related, other people would have been fired first. Um, I listened to this uh, lively on John Podoritz's recommendation. I listened to this very lively um, episode of the Megan Kelly podcast where uh, Michael Brennan Dory and and Noah Rothman were on, I guess they have a monthly national review day over there. And, um, and I generally agree with Megan Kelly, um, about her, her point about how the timing doesn't support a lot of the existing theories. Uh, her point is that the timing doesn't support a lot of the existing theories about why Tucker got canned. And her theory is basically the, I mean, my position since it's happened has basically been, yeah, look, I am sure that Arena Brigante, who's this horrible person who worked in the comms, who's a comms person at Fox or, or Suzanne Scott, I'm sure a bunch of these people are taking little bites of credit in the press by saying, yeah, they were the ones who pulled the trigger because they can't stand Tucker for whatever reason, or they're pissed off about what Tucker said in text messages. But at the end of the day, it's Rupert's decision. It's not Lachlan's decision. It's not Susan Scott's decision. Rupert's the decider. You know, there's this, uh, thing in, um, you know, there's, a, there's this German political philosopher, Carl Schmidt, bad guy. He's called the crown jurist of the, um, of the Third Reich. Um, very weirdly popular in segments of the left about a decade ago. I don't know if he still is. Um, and to be honest, I see his influence lurking all over the place 
in elements of the right, although they could have come to the same arguments independently. And I'm not talking about eradication of the Jews or invading Poland or anything like that. But uh, but the essence of Carl Schmitt's philosophy was that, um, you know, well, there were a bunch of things to it. But one of them was is that you're defined by your enemies. You know, you, it's this famous line, tell me who your enemy is and I'll tell you who you are. But his other point is that there's always, you know, decisions always basically boil down to one person. Sort of like uh, uh, Mel Gibson's little speech about the syndicate and payback. And it's Rupert's company, right? So, like, lots of people can put in recommendations to do X or to fire Y or whatever. Um, and Rupert can let them believe that they're the one who made the call. I mean, Rupert can say to Lachlan, you decide. But the, and this is the Schmidtian point, is that by allowing somebody else to decide, you're still deciding, right? I mean, the monarch says to the ambassador, you make the call. Well, that's still the monarch ultimately really making the decision um, to allow somebody else to make the decision. Oh, you know, authority always ends with one person. That, I don't think that's actually true in democracies. Um, but it is true in institutions like giant corporations like News Corp and lots of other, and it's certainly true in authoritarian regimes. Ultimately, all decisions in Putin's Russia are made by Putin, even if he farmed out um, specifics to some franchise. He's still ultimately responsible for what his subordinates do because he has uh, unilateral authority to give authority to his subordinates. So he's responsible for their decisions. It's not like in a democracy where, you know, governors in states don't have to, don't answer to the president, right? They don't take orders from the president. Um, the president is not responsible for decisions made by the governor of Texas or Florida or Minnesota or whatever. Um, but in a dictatorial regime, if you appoint all the gov regional governors, right, um, you're still responsible for what they do and say. Anyway, uh, and yeah, in the uh, I don't want to get all Ronald Coase on everybody, but like, you know, there's a, to a certain degree, corporations are dictatorships and, um, and Rupert's the dictator. And um, so this is ultimately his decision. And I, I will say, as someone pointed out in the comments, I've been saying for years, Rupert Murdoch has always been capable of making really big, tough, hard, sweeping decisions when he felt he had no other choice. Um, you know, he shut down a whole newspaper during the phone tapping scandal in the UK just because he, he, he needed to cauterize the wound. He shut down his dad's newspaper and my dad, my dad always used to tell me about how the kids selling ads at the Weekly Standard back in the 90s um, were inviting trouble because Rupert may not be paying attention, but when he does pay attention, um, he can be really decisive. And you talk about how like uh, Rupert Murdoch shut down the family newspaper, the thing that launched the entire Murdoch empire in Australia, the second it started losing money. Um, and, you know, so like the fact that Rupert was willing to fire Tucker for reasons we still don't completely understand or know. And no, I don't think it's because uh, Tucker was turning religious and that the network is anti-religious. I think that's nonsense. I think, I think the 
Murdoch people probably leaked some of that to hurt Tucker or to make him look weird. Um, but maybe not because Rupert's smart enough to know that like leaking that is kind of helpful to Tucker with elements of the right. Anyway, um, I got a lot of all that being said, I got a lot of predictions wrong. I will. I'm going to try to move a little bit more out of the prediction business. Or I'll do it the classic pundit way of saying, I think that there's a 60% chance Biden does X. And so, like, you know, <laughs> if it happens, people will just remember that you predicted it. And if it doesn't happen, you know, if people accuse you of being wrong, you say, look, I guess it was a 60% chance. You know, um, that's what pundits do all the time. Um, and since I'm doing this mea culpa uh, thing, um, Let's move off. I don't know if I want to talk about Tucker. I don't know if I want to write about Tucker more. I'm kind of exhausted. Uh, but um, I don't know that I actually predicted that Kevin McCarthy would be a disaster as speaker in concrete, falsifiable terms. But I certainly thought it. And I certainly think my writing about McCarthy reflected that. Um, I, I, I do remember saying that I thought he would get, he would ultimately become speaker, but his speakership would be short-lived. Um, I still think that's possible. Um, but credit where due, I think he's doing a better job on his terms, not necessarily on my terms, but as a, he's doing a better job as speaker than I would have expected, given the nature of his caucus, given his nature, uh, and given the not just the nature of his caucus, but the size of his caucus. I guess size could be included in nature. Um, uh, you know, he just doesn't have a lot of votes to spare. And he's got a lot of... Um, there's a diversity of people who are pains in his ass. And some of them have good reasons to be um, ass aches and other people don't. But he's got to deal with them all the same. And I think he's done better than I would have expected. I don't think he's getting fair treatment from the press for it. I mean, when, look, I, 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 and let me be clear. I don't like the way the speaker's office has worked for the last quarter century. And I have a lot of blame. I think Nancy Pelosi has made it, is, 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 is the worst offender, but Paul Ryan, Jim, uh, John Boehner, uh, they deserve their fair share of blame for all of this, for perpetuating the institution. One of the, one of the many reasons why Congress is broken is that, um, and this is why the, the, the House Freedom Caucus guys, some of them had, you know, uh, good arguments. This is why I kept defending Chip Roy amidst all that stuff. Um, getting back to regular order would be good for the House and good for American democracy. Um, and what regular order means is that essentially stuff comes up from below. That, you know, go watch the um, Schoolhouse Rock video on how a bill becomes a law. It's, you know, I, stuff is supposed to come from out in the ideas, grievances, problems, solutions. These things are supposed to generate from below, come to con members of Congress, are supposed to come to Congress with these things after talking to their constituents. They are supposed to be hammered out um, through fact finding first, through a process of discovery first in committees, 
you know, committees bring in experts. They bring in not just experts to sort of say what one side wants to hear or what the other side wants to hear, but to bring new facts, right? To bring fact finders into the process and say, here's what's going on where at the border or here's what's going on in schools or whatever. And uh, then committees are supposed to, after a process of discovery and investigation and, and rigorous debate, they are supposed to then craft legislation that they debate in committee. And then the committee presents, reports that out, votes that out of committee, that legislation to the body and the body debates it again. Maybe it's referred to another committee. Maybe all sorts of other things happen. Lots of log rolling and wheeling, dealing and, and, and horse trading and, and, and all that happens. And then it leaves the House and it goes to the Senate. And the same thing sort of happens all over again. Some committee takes it. They talk about it. They debate it. More experts, blah, blah, blah. They come up with their own version, yada, yada, yada. And um, that's how the budget's supposed to work. That's how legislation's supposed to work. All that kind of thing. In the last 25 years, the way it's worked is basically a bunch of people uh, get together in small offices, um, in the speaker's office. Sometimes it's, what is it, the, the four corners. It's the minority majority leadership from both parties. But, regardless, but usually it's the speaker's office in consultation with a Senate majority leader. And they craft all of the legislation themselves behind closed doors. And then they bring it out like Moses with tablets and make the entire body vote on it, up or down, no debate, no amendments. Now, this is a generalization. There have been exceptions, yada, yada, yada. But generally speaking, leadership and legislative process has worked from the top down rather than the bottom up for the last 25 years. And that's a mess. So I don't like the way that works to the extent that McCarthy is breaking from that successfully. Good for him um, and good for America. And I mean that sincerely. Uh, on the more sort of basic pundit level, um, it's a big deal that McCarthy got this uh, debt ceiling thing passed. Now, I don't like debt ceiling brinksmanship. I don't think debt ceiling brinksmanship is the way to run a railroad. Um, I would much rather spending restraint um, when you're racking up the credit card bills rather than when you're arguing with the credit card company about what you owe and what you're willing to pay. Um, and that's the right analogy here. You know, Kevin McCarthy had this thing about how, you know, it's like any family, if you rack up a lot of credit card debt, you know, you're going to talk, you're going to start, you're going to have a conversation about spending. He's right about that. But you can't have a family conversation about, okay, so which, which credit card debts are we going to default on, right? That's a different conversation. And that's sort of what default, uh, what, what credit ceiling fights um, are like. And I don't like them. I think it's stupid to play games with the, the credit rating. But I will admit, Part of the reason I don't like them is that they usually fail. So you're, you're, you're damaging America's credit rating and getting nothing in return, which is really stupid. If you can get something in return, maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe um, if you could get, if you, if, look, let's put it this way. If Kevin McCarthy could successfully <laughs> force the Senate and the White House to agree to long-term entitlement reforms or spending reforms or spending restraint or cost cutting, whatever you want to call it, that made a real difference, I'd say the brinksmanship was worth it. I just don't think it's possible to happen. And the failure when it happened, and when you, when you do get failure, uh, it redounds to blame on the Republican Party. So 
I don't much care about the Republican Party in terms of blame stuff anymore. But to the extent I have vestigial partisan arguments about why I think this kind of thing is dumb, it's because I think it's bad for the party. That said, it's a big deal that, again, that Kevin McCarthy got this done. It proves to his caucus that he can actually get the votes. And it proves to the Democrats that he can actually get to the vote, get the votes. Um, and it, it creates a pressure on Biden to respond that he wouldn't, I think, politically have any reason to respond, to cave to, to McCarthy's demands to negotiate on anything if McCarthy couldn't first demonstrate that he had his own house in order, and no pun intended. And um, the fact that McCarthy has done that is impressive. It certainly beat my expectations. I think McCarthy, you know, this week he's the, he, he complained that the press underestimated him, and I think he's got an argument there. Um, and there's also just this, you know, thing where, look, I, I don't like, I think I just explained a great needless detail about why I don't like the way the speaker's office is run or the way the house is run, um, over the last quarter century, but you know who loved it? Democrats, the, at least when Democrats were in power, uh, all of these fawning, um, bios and and political obits, even though she's still in the House, for Nancy Pelosi's speakership um, were all about how she was this master of the House. And, like, no one had shown this kind of deft legislative skill since LBJ or Daniel Webster or, I don't know, Cato the Elder. No, Cato the Elder wasn't a good legislator in terms of that kind of stuff. Who was? Uh, Cicero? I don't know. Anyway, um, Brutus? Someone will tell me who is the best legislature le legislator in terms of getting stuff passed of ancient Rome. And don't say Caesar. I mean, like when it was still a republic. Um, anyway, so you know when she basically, I, I again, I believe this as a fundamental thing: subverted democratic processes, undermined the institution of the House, undermined the democratic um, representative flavor and, and nature of our Congress. Uh, the response from the New York Times editorial page and MSNBC on down was slay queen, um, you know, all those you go girl stuff. And um, to the extent Kevin McCarthy's having wins, it's it's uh, it can't escape the the narrative that is just that Republicans are crazy. And look, I think Republicans are pretty crazy um, in terms of how dominant the crazies are in the party. I don't think all Republicans are crazy or anything like that. And I think, anyway, I think it could backfire. And I just want to say Kevin McCarthy deserves some credit. Now, since we're still on House stuff, let's talk for two seconds about um, Randy Weingarten and Marjorie Taylor Greene. I got really mad uh, on Twitter about Marjorie Taylor Greene going after Randy Weingarten, who's the president of the American Federation for Teachers. And, um, I think one of the single most pernicious political personalities um, of my lifetime. Um, I don't mean Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, I mean Randy Weingarten. Um, and I'll get to her in a second. But Marjorie Taylor Greene, while going after Randy Weingarten, who so totally deserves to be gotten after by a Republican committee, um, Randy Weingarten is gay 
she's she said that she had kids through marriage, by which, uh, you know, most people took her to mean that she married a woman who had kids and they became her stepkids, right? Marjorie Taylor Greene just goes off on this thing. It's mostly through insinuation. People saying that she straight up said this about adoptive parents or anything. Uh, she didn't, at least not that I've seen. But what she she did through sort of insinuation and sort of snideness suggest that mothers who are not the biological parent of their kids aren't mothers, aren't real mothers. Um, and I just think that's gross. And lots of people came back at me saying, um, look, it's, of course it's true that there's a difference between bi biological mothers and non-biological mothers in some areas and, 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 um, and no differences in others, which I'm perfectly fine to concede. I have no problem as a guy who believes in evolutionary psychiatry, psychology that there are certain bonds or commitments that come from actually giving birth to a child that maybe don't come or are delayed if you've adopted a child or anything like that. Um, uh, you know, there are, there's ample data that says that um, for men, um, like it's, it's tragic, but like the, the amount of child abuse by, by step parents versus biological parents, uh, sorry, the amount of child abuse by stepfathers versus biological fathers, it's orders of magnitude greater. There is something about uh, men being worse towards non-biological progeny because of the whole, you know, the argument would be, um, you know, about spreading your own genes rather than protecting somebody else's genes, yada, yada, yada. So I, I'm open to all that kind of stuff. But that's not what Margie Taylor Green was getting at. That's not what she was insinuating. Um, and I, you know, and then other people were coming at me saying, "Oh, look, look! This is the actual family history of Randy Weigarn. Who gives a rat's ass? I can't stand Randy Weigarn. For all I know, she adopted wolves. Um, that's not my point. My point is, is that at a hearing where you are got this just unbelievably rich target for serious." Morally, politically, philosophically important arguments and interrogation, you drag in this sort of dumb, sort of drunk, ladies who lunch, shitty little snide point that like people who don't or aren't the biological parents of their kids aren't real mothers. And... um it's stupid because it made a lot of people feel sorry for Randy Weingarten, which no one should under normal circumstances. It's also stupid because it just makes Marjorie Taylor Greene the issue, not Randy Weingarten. And when you've got the head of the AFT who's done so much damage to this country, particularly during COVID, up there to defend themselves, and they're lying. Randy Weingarten just lied and lied. We'll get to that in a second. Um, why you think it's cool or awesome or entertaining or valuable to make Margie Taylor Greene's brain farts and nastiness the issue is beyond me. And it, it repulses people, you know, people who, who otherwise might be attracted to the Republican Party's message or might be interested in hearing the truth about Randy Weingarten. 
they hear this, you know, bitchiness and um, they're like, yeah, I just don't want to be part of that, that team. That's not, that's not my team. Um, what does that have to do with anything? And it's also just, you know, just, uh, you know, broadening out for two seconds, it's, it's just an incredibly dangerous, stupid line of reasoning if you're a serious pro-lifer. And again, I spent my entire professional, almost my entire professional career surrounded by deeply passionate and committed pro-lifers who take the adoption stuff crazily seriously. I mean, I don't mean crazily as in like bad. I just mean intensely seriously. You know, the work that my friend Catherine Lopez has done to popularize abort, to, uh, adoption as a alternative to abortion is just, you know, it's amazing. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a calling for her. And to hear someone say, well, you know, you can't really know what it's like to be concerned for, for kids as a mother if, if um, they're not your biological children just does damage to that. To no benefit. I mean, there's what you get nothing out of it. Anyway, so I just, uh, it, it, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think, is, is dumb. She's dumb, but she's, but she's incredibly arrogant. Um, a, a, and, and, and there's nothing sort of more d- dangerous to politics to have someone who has got a charismatic following among people who is too stupid to know that they're stupid. And so they think that they're making really profound, interesting points. And then because of negative polarization and tribal politics and all this stuff, a lot of otherwise smart people feel like they have to come up with smart defenses of really, really dumb things. And, um, and people say, well, are you paying so much attention to her? Um, I don't want to pay attention to her. You know, I, I'd like her to be kicked out of Congress. I'd like her voters, you know, her, 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 her district not to get her reelected. But she's very close to Kevin McCarthy now. She gets an enormous amount of attention. Um, she raises a lot of money for the party. You know, I think she's uh, higher ranking and has more influence in the Republican Party than AOC has in the Democratic Party. Um, or at least it's arguable. Anyway, so I just, you know, it's gross. So let me get back to, be- to Randy Weingarten for a second. So she just lied, right? She just said flatly in this sort of these gas, like more than once is my understanding you know, that she, uh, that they work tirelessly to get the schools open as soon as possible. Um, it's just a lie. It's just a lie. And there were lies compounded upon lies in the school and in, in the teachers unions, you know, efforts to keep the schools closed. You know, they, they insisted that it was all for the children, but they weren't going to open the schools um, until all the teachers got vaccinated first, all the teachers get vaccinated first, and then they still wouldn't. The, the, the teachers still wouldn't go back. Um, they extorted this country to the tunes of hundreds of billions of dollars for, um, you know, COVID relief money to go to education systems in this country that is still sloshing around, slowly being eaten by you know uh, by grifters and and and. And, and sort of mischievous state legislatures and bureaucrats spending it on all sorts of stuff that didn't need to have that kind of money in the first place. Um, and they're not owning up to the fact that, you know, while they were keeping the schools closed, they were lying about like how remote learning is just as good, um, about how there are no, you know, 
cognitive problems that come with masks or with delayed learning or learning loss. It was just a scandal. And Randy Weigern deserves to be raked over the coals for it. But instead, you know, you give people the excuse of saying, let's talk about what a dippy, nasty person Marjorie Taylor Greene is. They're going to take it, you know, have a little discipline. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. If we're going to talk about also things that are bad for pro-lifers, this, I don't know if people saw it, but like Steven Crowder, who I think is just not a great guy. I'm not going to get in. Uh, his, he's going through some terrible divorce and his wife released, his wife's family released some video about the emotional abuse that she has been subjected to. I'm not going to get deep in the weeds on somebody's divorce. I shouldn't have to, in this day and age, care about, you know, Stephen friggin' Crowder's divorce, even though he's apparently out there talking about how it's outrageous that the laws of Texas allow his wife to leave him even if he doesn't want her to, which is, you know, that's your public policy angle if you wanted one. But uh, the thing that infuriated me about Crowder this week was he and his sort of frat bro entourage on that painfully unfunny thing that he does just went to town making fun of this new Barbie doll line for kids with downs. First of all, I, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for, for kids with downs. Just like when you meet them in real life and you get over whatever BS uh, presumptions you might have had, they almost invariably, they turn out to be among the sweetest, nicest people, most considerate people. And, um, and you know, there's this massive problem of Downs kids. I mean, some people don't think it's a problem. That's an argument. I'm not going to get into that argument. But, you know, that's a very eugenic argument that says it's good to abort fetuses that have Downs. And there are some countries that boast about having gotten rid of all down, Downs births in their country. It's not the kind of thing I would want to boast about, but okay. Um, it's a thing. And, and I get it as an individual parent, like the idea of bringing in a special needs kid fills you, you know, with trepidation, right? And some people calculate that trepidation, you know, make decisions one way and some people make decisions another way, you know, that's all fine. I'm not saying it's all fine. I'm just saying I acknowledge that that's a real human thing. Um, but if you're a pro-lifer, I mean, the work the pro-lifers have been trying to do to keep people from aborting Down's kids has been heroic, morally heroic, even if you think it's the wrong policy and you think it's wrong to bring in a kid into the world with, with that condition, you know, I, I, it's hard for me not to see how you would still have to acknowledge how just sort of morally consistent and heroic um, the pro-lifers who, who 
who make these arguments and live by their arguments are. And here are these just nasty high school bully idiots making fun of like they have the real human girl in a princess dress and they're making fun of her. They're making fun of the whole idea. Look, I get it. I can see how dudes, I've gotten into inappropriate lines of humor before, but you don't do that. You don't do that kind of, and I don't like that humor about Downs kids. I just don't think it's funny. But my point is, is that, you know, funny's in the eye of the beholder when it comes to some of these things, but you don't do it in public. You don't do it if you claim to be like, uh, you know, on the side of like the pro-life cause, because if you're a parent and you're thinking of, you're trying to make this difficult to sit, or I was able to put it this way. If you, if you're pregnant and you have, and you're entertaining thoughts about having an abortion because you don't want to bring a Downs kid into this world. And then you see these, these ghouls mocking and ridiculing uh, down kids and ridiculing the idea of making them, of, of, of carving out a little space to have them a real, give them, you know, a normal childhood like other kids. Um, that's going to push you the other way. If you think, you know, that kind of cruelty is always just going to be around the corner. Um, that is not a pro-life message to send out there. And it, he's just such a weak man is, 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 is all I can, you know, if you, again, I don't want to get into the, divorce thing, but like, you know, he felt compelled to come to the defense of uh, Kanye West over the anti-Semitism stuff, you know, and um, and all of his humor, as far as I can tell, I'm not a close student, is the kind of humor you associate with the biggest jerks in high school. That kind of stuff is just becoming like definitional to conservatism, which was this point that, you know, I keep coming back to. You know, I'll just call it the birds of prey point from Burke. Um, I talked to Jack Butler about it for a while this week. This idea that just being a dick makes you manly or cool or or um, is proof of your will. It just runs against everything I ever was told or thought um, or read about what actual manliness is supposed to be. And it's not like... You know, my view of this is this way outdated thing. I mean, remember, there were all these guys who loved the the speech. It was it an American sniper where the dad is teaching his kids, you know, look, you know, there are there are wolves and sheep out there and don't be a sheep, don't be a wolf, be a guard dog or something like that. You know, this this idea that men are supposed to be protective, that there's there's an essence to gentlemanliness. You know, maybe it's because gentleman sound gentle sounds weak now. You know, a gentleman wouldn't lift, bro. You know, you gotta you know, it's like hard man is supposed to be the definition of what it is, uh, what it means to be manly and sort of nasty, shrewish. I don't know. I, I'm trying to think of the the right adjectives for the female equivalent of this thing. You know, this sort of this sort of bitchy wine for lunch crowd gathers just to say mean things about the people who aren't at the table. Those are like the sort of gendered versions of what's happening to the right these days. It's just sort of the institutionalization of meanness as a virtue. I think it's gross. I, mean, I just think it's just gross and it's so counterproductive. Oh, so that, you know, I don't know. 
let's talk about Tucker a little bit thing here because it, it gets into this. Um, on this Megan Kelly podcast, which I will confess, I like Megan Kelly. I've always liked Megan Kelly. Haven't agreed always with her choices. And the only time I've communicated with her in the last few years is, is I, 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 I DM'd her to say that she was making a profound moral error having Julie Kelly on her podcast. And uh, I don't want to get into what her response was because it's assumed to be confidential. But uh, I have no problem telling you what my end of the conversation was. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I think she's talented. I defended her to the hilt when uh, Trump went after her in that debate. That was the beginning of the end of my good standing at Fox. I'll tell you that was where I took her side over Trump's side. But uh, I don't really agree with her take on a lot of this stuff. She just seems like she wants to be anti-anti-Tucker. I get that lots of my friends are just still wildly pro-Tucker. Michael Brendan Doherty had a, has been manding the ramparts defending Tucker. I think, I think Michael's arguments have problems, and I'll try to have him on the podcast to talk about it. But I, I, I do think Michael's making all his arguments in good faith. Um, I just think he's, his analysis is just wrong on a bunch of fronts. But anyway, so I listened to this podcast, and I, I get what she's talking about, and I get why she's so mad at Fox. I'm mad at Fox. I think I've made that pretty clear. But... Tucker's not a victim, right? You know, he has to now negotiate the rest of his contract. But I think he's making, I saw the figure, $1.6 million a month from Fox. Um, and we don't know the real reasons necessarily. Let me put it this way. I think all of the explanations about why Tucker was fired are probably true to one 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 extent or another i i just think some are, are like one percent of the issue and some are probably 25 percent of the issue i think being bigger than fox and not being um like this is a point that michael made on the on the megan kelly podcast that i think is somewhat right that tucker was not reliable you know what the message is going to be from hannity and from laura you don't know what it's going to be from Tucker. Um, he's unpredictable where, where I would throw in. He's also wildly irresponsible and often extremely dishonest. Michael would just say he's principled and, and that's what makes him unpredictable. I'd say Tucker's more like unprincipled and that's what makes him unpredictable. But um, therein lies the debate. But the lack of being unpredictable, I think, was a big problem. Um, which in fairness to Fox, unpredictability after you've just written a check for close to a billion dollars because of the irresponsibility of your own employees, a little predictability seems uh, like a desirable thing in your hosts. I cannot believe some of the stories that I'm, and I haven't, I haven't done a huge deep dive on this, but some of the stories about, you know, this last minute decision to fire Tucker in, came from the fact that like the board hadn't seen some of these supposedly terrifying texts um, until like this weekend or something like that. What is going on with the Fox legal team, right? I mean, like, first of all, I remember, was it George Will used to say when he was on the board of the Orioles that... You know, they were spending, like I don't know, I'm making up a number, but like they were spending $100 million a year and coming in like ninth place. And his, his point about why they did a major overhaul of the entire organization was 
we can come in ninth place a lot cheaper. <laughs> um, these guys, if they were going to settle, could have settled a lot earlier and saved everybody a lot of embarrassment and cost, right? I mean, just like the settlement doesn't include what have got to be tens of millions at least tens of millions of dollars in legal fees that have already been racked up, right? Not to mention all of the time um, and morale problems that got uh, generated by this lawsuit with more lawsuits on the way, which again, more lawsuits on the way, predictability is desirable. So how did I get on this? Um, oh yes, yeah, so just the terrible legal work here. Like the board of, like if my board of the dispatch, which is this tiny little board of great, you know, a couple of great guys, plus me and Steve and our lawyers, whatever. If, if we were privy to what is supposed to be like the Pandora's box of, of liabilities, both legal and PR wise, that were all of these texts and depositions and whatnot. And the board is only hearing about stuff that justifies firing your highest rated guy this weekend, like what, what the hell, like, you know, what is a board for? And, and, and I think like, you know, these shareholder lawsuits are probably going to generate, you know, more change because, um, I'd be pretty pissed at the board if I were a big holder of big stockholder. So anyway, I, I don't know the ultimate reason why he was fired. I think it was probably, um, you know, I say this all the time about so many things. There's a reason why we say the straw that breaks the camel's back. And it's because straws usually by themselves do not break camel's backs. And so there is this desire to reduce everything to the most recent, you know, prime mover is the wrong word. But, you know, the, 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 we, we, the way we debate things in this country often boils down to treating the, the final reason among a list of many reasons, the, well, the last straw, right? We treat the final reason as the only reason for something. You know, I can't tell you how many people I've had to correct. I've given up kind of correcting people that, you know, while I left, what, what precipitated my departure from Fox was Tucker's Patriot Purge thing. Um, it was the last straw for me. If you go back and you look at the texts that, um, um, what's his name from the New York Times, um, Ben Smith, you know, wrote about, you know, when I saw the commercial for that thing, the trailer for that thing, I texted Steve and I was like, if this thing, I'm paraphrasing, but it's, the text is out there, I think. I was like, if this thing is as bad as it looks like it is, um, I think I'm done. And Steve was like, yeah, me too. You know, and Steve, um, like so many things, Steve and I arrive at the same place from just slightly different directions. But there are a lot of reasons why I left Fox. This was just like, you know, this is where the cup ran, runneth over. And I think the same thing is probably true of Tucker. Tucker spent the last few weeks since the, uh, since the Dominion settlement number came out, Tucker seemed to be... Um, playing with matches a lot on air, saying things that you wouldn't think he would say after Fox just took it on the chin. He's all of a sudden talking a lot about truth um, and how he's a truth teller and truth gives you power and all this kind of stuff. And I'll come to that in a second. Um, 
But I suspect that part of the reason why he was fired is that, you know, the word went down from Rupert, everybody cool it, play it safe. Don't get us in any more trouble while we're still paying off the trouble you, you already got us into. And Tucker's like, nah, dog, um, let's see how far I can push this. And I mean, I, I had texts with friends saying, is he trying to get fired? I mean, what is this about? And um, um, cause it was kind of death wishy kind of stuff. I didn't think they were actually going to fire him for it. I thought his understanding of the institution was obviously much greater than my own. And he knew where, where the limits were, but apparently he didn't. So I, you know, I'm, I'm not claiming I predicted this. I just couldn't understand it. All right. So I, I, where do, oh, so I, I, if I can remember the exact point I was trying to build up to, I'll let you know. But um, let's talk about this truth thing. So Michael Brennan-Doherty and a lot of other Tucker fans, um, they ma they're making these arguments like he's this deeply principled guy. And I think, you know, Tucker for sure has some principled positions. I just don't think that they necessarily apply to his philosophy of being a broadcaster. Um, I think Tucker has a well-developed view that broadcasters are supposed to be entertainers first. Um, and we saw some of that in the, in the private communications from Dominion stuff. Um, that's what, you know, this whole respect the audience, building up the brand, right? I mean, if he's this great paladin of a populist, anti-establishment, uh, America first sort of philosophy, you don't talk about building up the brand that as, you know, in that context, he sees this as a business. I mean, I, I, I'm very confident of this, you know, uh, having been around Tucker and around friends of Tucker's for a quarter century that um, he thinks that people who take being on TV um, or being too seriously as a journalistic enterprise are full of themselves, that it's fundamentally an entertainment medium and you should be entertaining um, to the audience and ent being entertaining gives you uh, poetic license to say things that you probably know aren't true, but, you know, you know, print the legend kind of thing. And I think I'm being extremely fair here to Tucker, <laughs> overly fair here. And, um, and so like, you know, Michael's position, you know, he, he has this piece at, at NR, which a bunch of people sent me. It's well done. You know, Michael's very smart. He's very good at this kind of thing where he, he defines the issue as um, this, he, he restricts his argument to this claim that the texts and emails from Tucker prove that he's a hypocrite and unprincipled and inconsistent because he was saying one thing on air and another thing in private. And I think Michael makes an absolutely fair point that we are different people in our private texts and communications than we are public facing. And I, as I was saying, you know, I didn't plan it this way. As I was saying earlier, that's as it should be. The public space should be different than the private space. You can say things with friends, with a presumption of privacy that you cannot say in, or should not say in public. And that's not wokeness. That's not political correctness. That's just fricking good manners and how society is supposed to work. So I had no problem with that, right? I, I agree that secret tapes um, reveal things that are really context dependent. That's fine. And 
I don't care. Okay, so like Tucker was mad about some flack from the Trump campaign, and that's what he was talking about here or there. I'm not sure I buy all of those explanations and excuses. The My bigger point is I don't care about all those explanations and excuses. You can take, let you can just say, you know, let's pretend we're in a courtroom. Let's say all of the private texts and emails are inadmissible to this conversation and only go with the public Tucker Carlson. Well, the public Tucker Carlson is the guy who put out Patriot Purge. And, you know, in Patriot Purge, you're supposed to come away with, I mean, it's, 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 it's cleverly done in the extent that you cannot find a bunch of direct quotes from Tucker's lips saying uh, January 6th was a false flag operation. He puts those words in other people's mouths. He puts that impressions. Um, he puts that impressions forth visually. It, it sort of incepts itself into the audience. But that is the message that you're supposed to take from this thing, is that there was some sort of nefarious... Um, behind the scenes, deep state operation that set up all of these deeply patriotic people um, to take the fall and a sort of Reichstag kind of Reichstag fire kind of scenario, right? And then there are other people who like turn up the paranoid paranoia level by saying they're coming for you next. We're going to have Americans sent to Gitmo for just voting for Trump. It is a grotesquely irresponsible thing that Tucker did. And I, you know, I know that Michael thinks that January 6th was wicked, thinks that how Trump behaved on January 6th was wicked. I remember, I use the word wicked because I remember him saying it on one of the podcasts, and I think it's a really perfect word for some of this stuff. It was just wicked. And Tucker with all the benefit of hindsight, with all the benefit of the facts that came out since January 6th, a year later or whatever, however time frame it was, comes out with this thing, Patriot Purge, that says not only was it not wicked, but the real wickedness was the, was the woke left or the deep state um, or the FBI that um, turned these, you know, these righteous patriots into political prisoners and victims. Now, if Tucker believes that, um, why be so cutesy and clever in how you phrase it so that no one can actually pin it on you directly? And if he doesn't believe that, which I don't think he does, not really, um, stop talking about how he's a truth teller. He's a truth manufacturer. You know, it's sort of, it's like my running thing about how I think it's so sort of on point, almost like, you know, from an allegory that Donald Trump's social media company is called Truth, where he posts truths. And, you know, it's like he's posting truths in a post-truth era um, that are not, in fact, that in the pre-post-truth era would be known as lies. And the Patriot Purge thing and all the stuff like it that Tucker does on a regular basis is, is, they're not all direct lies, but they're all fundamentally or mostly fundamentally dishonest. And I, I take it kind of personally, I have to admit, like, you know, all these people are telling me how I'm jealous of Tucker and all this kind of crap. Look, I, I have a certain amount of envy for anybody who makes $1.6 million a month. Um, I could really go for $1.6 a month for a little while. But I don't, you know, I, I think I am one of the least success 
least envious of successful people I know. Um, you know, and I, I know a lot of very successful people, including a lot of very successful people in my line of work. And I'll say a lot of very successful people that I think I'm smarter than um, or a better writer than. But like life's, life is life. I actually think that Tucker's one of the few people who actually is smart enough and talented enough to deserve his level of success. I just think it's a shame that he does it the way he does it. Um, so I'm not envious of Tucker in that sense. It's not like, I mean, he once accused me of having imposter syndrome, and that was why I was angry at what he was doing. I, I don't know. What am I being an imposter of? You know, I, I think I am I'm a pretty, pretty honest, unauthentic, you see what you get kind of guy when it comes to my writing and punditry. I don't know anybody else who talks as regularly and as openly about what my motivations are and aren't and all the rest and, and you know, shares stuff from his personal life. Regardless, the thing that, you know, I, I take personally here is like, I've taken on the chin for like seven years um, for my political apostasy when it comes to Trump and MAGA and all this kind of stuff. And I refuse to say the emperor's suit is awesome about all of this pretextual nonsense that is built into national conservatism and post-liberalism and, and, and all of this, you know, power-seeking, philosophically flaccid garbage that is all over the place. And if you've been listening to this podcast for the last, I don't know, how long have we been around? Five years now? Um, the thing I always say is like, the one thing I won't do is lie, right? I like, I, I just I think it's really important not to lie. Um, I think it's, you know, like how many times have I said on this podcast, like the fundamental definition of, you know, journalistic ethics that handles like 97% of journalistic ethics problems is don't say or write things you do not believe to be true. And a lot of people, and, and, I, and again, if you've listened to this for a long time, you know, I've been consistent on this. A lot of people don't agree with me on this point. A lot of people actually have a principled position that you're supposed to take the views of your audience and articulate them better than they can. Like that's a real view out there. And, um, and I think it's an absolutely fine view if you're the head of a trade association or a political activist group, right? I mean, like the head of NARAL um, should reflect the views of the members of NARAL. The head of Emily's List should, select, you know, should reflect the views of, of the members of Emily's List. NRA, go on down the list. That's all fine. But it's not the job of people in my line of work. And that's the whole thing about this respecting the audience stuff from Fox is we have to bend what we know to be true to what our audience thinks is false. And Tucker has been doing that crap for a very long time. And now he's coming out with this thing about how, you know, if you have truth on your side, truth gives you power and all this kind of stuff. And I, I, I take offense. He's been bending the truth, twisting the truth, playing games with the truth for years and getting fabulously wealthy from it. And I've actually been trying to follow the truth. I haven't been perfect about it, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I, 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 I sincerely try to have integrity when it comes to this kind of stuff. And I get endless for it. And I just, it pisses me off. I'll just be honest about that. It also, just as a matter of, just one last thing about this, because it, it comes up all over the place on all of these uh, NatCon and post-liberal, integralist, yada, yada, 
groups and Tucker sort of speak is, is channeling their voice. And Tucker gave out this, put out this video where he talks about how, you know, I can't remember the terms, but it's this, there's a uniparty, right? There's the, there's not a dime's worth of difference between both parties. And that's dumb. That's really, really dumb. And I say that as someone who is, who is, written many times and spoken many times now about how I am a principled both sides are, right? That both parties have real problems. And I get endless grief from the left and from the right for making both sides arguments, right? And, but my argument about the both sides thing isn't that necessarily that there's no ideological difference between the parties, it's that there's, there's increasingly little tactical or strategic difference between the parties. The parties think that the best way to run is to demonize their opponents, to unfairly lump the really bad versions of their opponents with the really good versions of their opponents all together and say they're all evil. That's what Biden's announcement video was, right? That he's running against MAGA and who's MAGA? The entirety of the Republican Party. You know, their entirety of the Republican Party is represented but the people showed up on January 6th. And if you don't like what happened on January 6th, you have to vote for Joe Biden. Otherwise, you liked what happened on January 6th. Those are the semiotics. That is the, that is the implications and the insinuations of that video and so much other of the mainstream media's and the Democratic Party's rhetoric. And I think it's cynical, factually false garbage. And it's bad for democracy. And it's dangerous and it perpetuates this cycle. The Republican Party is dedicated to the idea in terms of its marketing and its messaging that the other side is all AOC and Elon Omar and Antifa and all that. And they do the exact same freaking thing. That's a big part of my both sides-ism. Now, there are other parts of my both sides-ism that um, when it comes to economics, uh, that I think are, are real too, right? So there are elements where the parties overlap. Uh, uh, protectionism industrial policy, right? The Republican Party increasingly is abandoning its positions about free market stuff and thinks that the government should be bossing around business, that the, the government should be making choices for consumers. Um, I think it's terrible. One of the reasons why I think it's terrible is it's, I think it's bad policy. Another one of the reasons why I think it's terrible is because it's one of the, it's one of the bad policy positions that the left has had for decades that I don't think the right should accept. Now, Tucker has almost the mirror image argument about, and as do all of these other uniparty people, right? They think that um, the parties are alike in terms of policy stuff insofar as they're alike on all the policies they don't like. And basically, 90% of this boils down to foreign policy stuff. Um, it is really fascinating to me as a matter of just sort of uh, intellectual history and intellectual psychology of how so many movements that begin with concrete complaints about the way America is organized, our economy is organized, the way uh, certain groups are, um, are, are mistreated versus other groups, uh, how the culture is, is dysfunctional. And how quickly the people who are making those arguments end up basically making everything about foreign policy. 
right? It ends up being, you know, I mean, like last time I looked, Saurabh's just talking about how empire is the problem, as if anybody but anybody outside of a campus bookstore um, or some, you know, chat room uh, thinks that they live in an imperial country, right? I mean, Americans don't think of themselves as an empire. Um, um, this is something that people project upon it. And I'm open to the argument that they're wrong, but I'm just saying that, like, it just doesn't, this argument about how we have to dismantle the American empire um, in order to fix our domestic problems, um, I just think it's just terrible political science. I think it's terrible punditry. Um, the, the connective tissue isn't there. Um, but if you wanted to make an argument that we are an empire, I've had that argument a million times over the last quarter century. I can have it a million and one times. That's fine. But it's just, it's weird how people, my point is, it's weird how people convince themselves that they can't do anything about, I don't know, drag queen story hour until we first fix the problem of American imperialism. It's just weird. And it happens on the left and it happens on the right. And I don't get it. Um, and maybe it's something to write about another day. I don't know. This uniparty thing, right? So Tucker doesn't like that support for Ukraine, which is, you know, trended down a bit, but it's still a majority position in this country. And that a majority of Republicans and a majority of Democrats, um, certainly on Capitol Hill, support helping Ukraine for what I think are perfectly good reasons. I think we should help Ukraine. I think it's sort of a moral and national security imperative to help Ukraine. I own that. I don't. And I find the arguments that I'm wrong unpersuasive. If I found them persuasive, I might have different positions. So, but Tucker sees this consensus about, you know, support for Ukraine and says, ah, we live in a one-party state. No, we don't. It's just not like we live in a two-party system where there are some areas where there is still a bipartisan consensus. That doesn't mean this, the parties are indistinguishable from each other. I haven't seen the polling on this, but I'm pretty sure that large majorities of both parties think that we shouldn't spend trillions of dollars launching rabbits into the sun. That does not mean that there's no difference between Republicans and Democrats. It just means that Republicans and Democrats agree on some discrete issues. The second you're willing to say, you know, in, for benefit of a third party or, or anything concrete, I mean, I don't, who knows what's in Tucker's head? I suspect he's just going to go full Joe Rogan, but who knows? Um, if your argument is that there's no difference between the parties, then you basically have to concede, and I think Dan McLaughlin was making this point recently, you have to just concede all of your culture war arguments. You know, if you think that, like, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are both equally woke, if you think the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are both equally, what, uh, pro-choice? Um, that, you know, you, you have to just be blind yourself to issues like guns, abortion, um, the transgender stuff, right? How to fight crime. Uh, it's just, it's just dumb, right? And so like, it's a dumb argument. And the only way you can make it a smart argument is by getting to some really crazy level of abstraction or just um, saying the things that the two parties disagree on don't matter. 
And if they don't matter, what has Tucker been talking about on TV for the last five years? What has Fox been talking about on TV for the last five years if there's no difference between the parties on all these culture war things? What has anybody been talking about in my line of work for the last 50 years if there's no difference between the parties in terms of economic policy or foreign policy or trade policy and all this kind of stuff? I mean, like, there are differences between the parties. I wish there were the differences in some ways were greater and I wish the differences in some ways were less. But you have to have this sort of paranoid populist attitude that you're just locked out from everything to actually believe that this is true. And I don't believe that Tucker believes it's true to the extent that like, I, I mean, I think he's probably, he has probably got some theory he's convinced himself of about the uniparty BS. But um, I bet you if I sat down with him and argued with him about this, he would concede many of my points. He would just say they don't matter, which is also making my point. And so he's pandering to people who want to believe this is true. And because there is this weird current running through the right these days of how we live in this radical, um, you know, uh, moment that demands revolutionary zeal to overthrow our masters in some way. And, um, and you can't have that argument. You can't, ha you can't make those kinds of arguments unless you sort of say that the elites are monolithic, that the ruling class is monolithic. Um, and so therefore both parties are, um, indistinguishable. And it's just amazing how much of this stuff is 1960s, 1970s Marxist horseshit. Um, not in the terms of the theories of the means of production and the this and the that. I just mean in terms of, you know, the, the whole sort of Frankfurt school kind of argument that, 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 two-party democracy, liberal democracy, that capitalism, all of these things are um, frauds that manipulate um, people to think that they have agency and choice when really their choices are constrained um, by the powers that be, by, by the forces of capital, and, and, um, and that in reality all of this stuff that we think we have agency and direction in our lives is an illusion, um, that the real rulers don't care if you vote Republican or Democrat, the real um, powers behind the throne um, don't care if you, um, you know, buy a blue car or a red car, right? Because they're going to make their money anyway. Um, that sort of delusional weirdness is... Um, just running like prairie fire through the right these days. And, um, and I, look, I, I resent it because like, well, I resent it for all sorts of reasons, but one of the things is America has real problems, you know, and, and I'm fine with our, I, I, and I would like to address these problems. I don't like being put into this position where I have to say, you know, this isn't 1789 France and we are on the cusp of a revolution and the talk of revolution is stupid. And then people say, oh, so you're a defender of the status quo? And I was like, I'm not defending the status quo. The status quo sucks. I'm pissed off about the status quo. There are all sorts of things that are stupid, but they're like, they're stupid and bad and dangerous, you know? I mean, like, like 
from the stuff I was talking about with Randy Weingarten to the fact that we've got all of this debt um, to the fact that, you know, our military isn't up to snuff the way it should be. It's still much better than Russia's. Um, but that's not the benchmark. Um, you know, we got real, real problems in this country. And I try to talk about a lot of those problems on this podcast and in my writing. But I, you know, and again, I've been consistent on this. This country is screwed if we end up with two, if, let me put it this way. If Tucker's position were actually true, that we have a uniparty, right? That there really isn't any difference between the two parties and they were just Coke versus Pepsi, right? And I don't mean just like the parties in the formal Democrat versus Republican sense. I mean the parties in terms of the way like Burke would talk about parties as coalitions of like-minded interests. Um, you know, the war party versus the, you know, the peace party and that kind of thing. Um, if the conservative party is no longer conservative, is no longer no longer believes in free gov you know in in free markets and limited government. If it gives into this sort of rhetoric that is doesn't quite come from Trump yet, because he'll still say nice things about America in the past, um, but it comes from a lot of the sort of more online MAGA types about how America itself. I mean, that's that's the Patrick Deneen point, right? Is that America was flawed from the beginning, that we took a wrong turn with the Enlightenment, right? This is a big argument out there in certain quarters. Um, and if you end up with the conservative party being essentially um, in favor of right-wing statism, fighting it out with the, the progressive party being in favor of left-wing statism, then this country really is toast. Because neither the right-wing nor left-wing statist um, philosophies have limiting principles and um, and taken to their extremes, first of all, you just don't fix things like our entitlement problems or our debt problems or anything like that. But you also just don't make room for things like constitutionalism. Um, you know, there's a, there's a growing intellectual movement on the right that says adherence to the constitution is a problem, that it's holding us back in some way. Um, this has been a very common argument on the left for years, and I don't want to hear from, from progressive listeners who tell me that's not true. Progressives love the Constitution. Everyone loves the Constitution when the Constitution is on their side in a political argument. Um, but if you go back and you read, I don't know, what, it was Daniel Lazar wrote this book, Frozen Republic, about how we had to, how the Constitution was holding us back. You have all of these people for the last 10 years talking about how the, the Electoral College um, makes us undemocratic. The Senate makes us undemocratic. I can tell you right now, you want to get rid of the Senate? Um, the Constitution kind of implodes <laughs> if you get rid of the Senate. And I, and I don't think there's the possibility of getting rid of the Senate. You know, it's sort of like David's argument David French's argument about how most people aren't pro-free speech, but in any particular controversy about free speech, the other side suddenly becomes really pro-free speech for the purposes of winning the fight. Um, and so sometimes when it's left-wing speech being censored, um, the left all of a sudden loves the First Amendment. Um, and when it's right-wing speech being censored, all of a sudden the right loves the First Amendment. It's like that with the Constitution to a, 
to a certain, it hasn't, let me put it this way. It hasn't been like that with the constitution until recently, until recently, one of the few areas where I think the right was just simply in a political sense, morally superior to the left was in its fidelity to the constitution. And I've written too much about how um, the left has pushed, you know, you know, particularly my understanding from Sarah and David is that it's really not pushed this way in among the intellectuals anymore, but among elected politicians, the living constitution is a real thing among Democrats. It would drive me crazy. And I can't tell you how many times I've written about this, where the Democrats would talk all about the living constitution. It changes its meaning with every generation. Obama said this, Gore said this, Clinton said this, Pat Leahy said this, Schumer said this. Go, you can go back decades of Democrats talking about how, you know, the constitution is a living, breathing document that evolves and its meaning evolves. And we breathe new meaning to it in every generation and yada, 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 which is another way of saying the constitution doesn't actually mean anything. Because if it can be reinterpreted to mean X in one decade and not X in another decade without any new information, facts, or um, information, then all you're basically saying is that it's an inkblot, a Rorschach test that allows people to impose meaning on it. And, um, and it used to drive me crazy getting at this point about how people change sides, um, where Republicans would, you know, would introduce the idea of amending the Constitution, which is not a living Constitution argument. I cannot tell you how many times I've given talks where people have come up to me afterwards and said, look, if we didn't have a living Constitution, women wouldn't have the vote and the blacks and blacks would still be slaves. I was like, no. Women got the vote through an amendment to the Constitution. Blacks got the vote and 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 had their their citizenship and full humanity recognized through amendments to the constitution. Um, the living constitution has nothing to do with uh, ending slavery or giving women the vote, right? That's not the living constitution. That's the actual constitution being changed per the requirements spelled out in the constitution. And so every now and then Republicans will come forward and say, um, let's amend the constitution, balance budget amendment, gay marriage amendment, um, or sanctity of marriage amendment, whatever. And you can have arguments about whether these amendments were good ideas or bad ideas. That's not my point. It was amazing to me how all of a sudden, all of these very prominent Democrats would um, say, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not tinker with the majesty and brilliance of the founding fathers. They knew what they were doing. Right. There's a reason why they didn't put this idea in the Constitution. Let's not tinker or tamper with the magnificent structure of our Constitution. And it was such a profoundly hypocritical argument from people who had no problem with, you know, nine justices who are on their side of a policy question, just simply reading new meaning into the Constitution but actually going through the democratic and legislative process of amending the constitution, which is a really important process because it gets buy-in from Americans because it's so hard. You have to have debates in all these different states and it's, it's to, to ratify an amendment. Um, it's not the same thing as it just imposing a new constitutional interpretation um, from above by the court, which the Democrats never had a problem with when those impositions came down to their favor. And so one of the things that breaks my heart about this like new gun and good constitutionalism stuff 
is it is an effort to do what the left wanted to do for generations is make the Constitution um, irrelevant to their schemes to impose the policies that they want. And, um, and if that becomes a bipartisan view, right, then we basically have like a third world interpretation of our Constitution and our Supreme Court, where basically if you can just get your hacks on the Supreme Court, they'll do whatever you want. That's what they have in Russia. You know, that's what they have in a bunch of African countries. And that would be disastrous for this country. And I say that both as a conservative and just as sort of as an American. So anyway, uh, I don't know if that put a bow on my earlier point or if I just left a cliffhanger. If I did, I apologize. Um, but how long did I ramble on here? An hour and 26 minutes. So look at that. I guess I'm done. So I apologize for that. Maybe I just am dreading getting off the computer because that means I got to face all this real life stuff that I just don't want to face. But um, that's all I got. Um, actually, I, I could go on for a while more, but that's all I got for now. And um, thanks for listening. And um, I'll talk to you next week. 